Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Well, folks, Saturday night. <laughs> you having fun yet? How real did each of them seem? And where is it now? We're so mesmerized by the mind, by this, this world of thoughts and images and feelings and emotions and ideas and stories. It seems so real. That Tibetan poem I read the other day, do not believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like a rainbow in the sky. It just comes and goes. So this this path <coughs> This path begins wherever we are, every moment. Whatever's happening, that's, that's the door. That's the doorway to this path. Mindfulness is this soft readiness. The readiness for the unknown. We're not sure what's coming. There's that quality of being willing to not know rather than assuming. And the softness, it's not rigid, it's not fixed. 
We're not needing things to be a certain way, expecting them to be a certain way. Anytime we think we know what's happening or have a fixed idea about what we want to have happen, we destroy the possibility of true connection with the moment, with ourselves, or with life. So this soft readiness of mindfulness, this intention to understand rather than to control or resist or judge, rather than to try to manipulate experience to get it be the way we want it to. From there we we develop the interest, we, we come close to experience. We really look deeply at experience as it is to try to taste it, this quality of investigation. And then as we talked about last night, that investigation both brings and is supported by a kind of courageous energy, a willingness to be here in a gentle, persistent way again and again. As that energy and interest and mindfulness gather momentum, life begins to hold our attention. We become engrossed in what's happening. We want to be here. We want to sit. We want to stay instead of leave. This, this is called piti, joyful interest, rapture. The mind becomes almost transfixed, but in a way that's alive and flexible with experience. Wow. Wow. An egg. It's warm and soft. And it says, it says smooth and it has smell, and it nourishes me, and it's right here in my hand, and it's real. The most ordinary things become extraordinary. As the filters of the past and our preferences fall away. This quality of, of interest and joy and delight, this delight in the truth of our experience can spill over into a kind of tranquility. The mind can become more calm and still. This evening I want to talk about this next phase of the seven factors of awakening, these these tranquilizing or calming qualities of calm, concentration, and equanimity. And I want to talk about them in two different ways. I want to talk about them in terms of the formal meditative practice we've been doing, sitting and walking. And I want to talk about them as, uh, as strengths in our daily life. As we look ahead to tomorrow and the week and going home and moving back into the world. So this quality of calm, the analogy that's given is it's like being tired after walking in the sun 
on a hot, long journey and sitting down under a shady tree. The coolness, the ease, that, that resting, the mind resting. And I think each of us here on the retreat has tasted that to varying degrees, you know. The, we don't even realize the level of busyness in the mind. Things are going so fast in our day-to-day life. The demands, the pressures, the pace. And we sit down, and for the first, you know, day, it's just, it's just ricochets. Just things ricocheting off, like an echo chamber. And it's nuts. You know? It's nuts. There's a, a author by the name, author and uh, um, monk and uh, a meditation teacher by the name of Bhante Gunaratna. He has a monastery down in Virginia, I think. Beautiful, amazing man. I think he might even be in his 90s now. I recommended one of his books on the reading list. Um, (laughs) He has a line from one of his books. He says, and I'm going to paraphrase it here. He says, at a certain point in meditation practice, you will realize that your mind is completely insane, running down a hill in a wheelbarrow with no control. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay. (laughs) <laughs> it's not a problem. So, one of the things that happens in meditation practice is we see that, and just even in the seeing of it, there's a glimpse of something else. Because if we couldn't, if we couldn't see it, we would just be in it. We would just be in the wheelbarrow going down the hill, nuts. So that moment of seeing, there's that sense of possibility that there might be something else other than the madness of the echo chamber. And in the practice, we touch into these states of stillness and calm. Even if it's just for like a moment or two, Things get quieter, or something settles. Even, even just a little bit, you feel like the low-grade panic drops down a notch. The anxiety, the insecurity of being human just kind of, it drops. It's like, oh, what's that? That's different. That's different. I, and we, we, we didn't even realize sometimes, sometimes we do realize, but sometimes we didn't even realize how amped up we were until something settles, until we, we taste the potential of like, oh, this is what it's like to start to be here. And then sometimes it's, oh, I thought I was here this is what it's like to be here. 
and that goes, that continues. It gets deeper and deeper and stiller and stiller. The Buddha said, hard is it to tranquilize this mind. It trembles, it's unsteady, it's difficult to guard and hold back. It quivers like a fish taken from its watery home and thrown on the dry ground. It wanders about at will. So it's really important to come to know and recognize that quality of the mind that's like a fish out of water, flopping and flitting this way and that. And that it's not in our control. And that that's okay. But the more you try to control it, the more it resists and fights. And so in practice, part of what we're doing is learning, learning how to ease off and hold a very gentle, steady frame. It's like a chi- if a child were really panicky and upset and you want to comfort or steady the child, if you grab it really hard, it's just going to freak that kid out, you know? But if you just put your hand on their shoulder, or even just stare at them and say, I'm here. It's okay, I'm here. I'm right here. I'm right here. And you just stay steady. Eventually that child's going to pick up on that tone. It's going to, oh, okay. Okay. So this is this is from Ajahn Sachito, who's who's my main teacher, is the person I ordained with for a few years. He writes, actually, letting go requires holding. Not exactly holding on, but holding, or being held. You're held with awareness, with tenderness, held with patience, held with this beautiful firmness that's not savage or harsh, but just held carefully. And in the holding carefully, holding tenderly, holding with clarity, something in us starts to feel that and we begin to relax. It's like coming out of panic, as if someone were putting their hand on your shoulder when you're in some kind of panicking state, and you can just feel that steady presence. You're not judging, not being judged, not told to snap out of it, but you've got something to navigate towards. Some sense can navigate towards that steadiness, that gentleness, and then, ah, you come out of the trance. This occurs through your nerve endings. It's not just an idea. Letting go requires holding, being held. So this is part of what we're doing in the practice, is just learning to hold whatever's happening with this quality of steady, patient, tender awareness. Not trying to control it or change it or manipulate it or make it be different. 
just letting it be, but there's, there's a steady presence with it. Maybe we can feel the body, maybe we're aware of the breath, or the sound, or the space around us, or the quality of kindness, or even just the quality of awareness itself, just that knowing of what's happening. And then we don't pathologize our thinking. We don't pathologize the madness or the fickleness of the mind. The thinking, the distractibility, it's just the normal functioning of the mind. And when we can let go of the illusion that we're in control, then we can allow things to start to settle on their own, like in the Qigong. When you are doing a motion and you, you just allow the momentum to come to rest by itself. Thich Nhat Hanh uses the wonderful image of a glass of uh, apple cider with pulp in it. And if you take that glass of rich apple cider and you just set it down on the counter and you leave it there for a couple of hours, all the pulp just settles to the bottom and you're left with this clear, pure juice. So our mind is like that. So there is this, this setting it down carefully and holding it, but then you just let the junk and the madness and the restlessness and the sleepiness and the craving and the judging, just let it all kind of shake out on its own and settle down. And then we come into the state of calm, relative states of more tranquility. When part of what allows this, as I've been pointing to, is, the, is this, this willingness and the interest to be with the experience. Rather, to, let me start that sentence again. This willingness and experience, this willingness and interest in the process of knowing experience rather than getting what we want. The shift is instead of focusing on what's happening and wanting to get the good stuff and get away from the bad stuff, the interest becomes being aware regardless of what's happening. Just, the, just this, what's it like to know what's real, what's happening now. The more we shift to that, the more the mind settles. And this is because we, we start to relax because we're no longer resisting pain. We're no longer chasing pleasure. And then the body starts to relax. When the body is relaxed, the mind gets happy. And when the mind is happy, it becomes concentrated. It becomes collected. And so this is the next quality. This quality of concentration or samadhi. This is similar to energy, actually. This is one of the most misunderstood qualities in the Buddhist Buddhist practice. So the word samadhi 
literally means put together. It's related to like gathering up firewood, gathering a bundle of sticks, and gathering them all together. So that's the quality of concentration. It's that the mind is gathered together. The word concentration literally, right, means to make smaller. That's not concentration. That's not samadhi. Samadhi means stable, whole, collected. Everything has come together. There's a sense of unity in the mind. It's unified. All of our energy, attention that's normally so fragmented and scattered is available and collected. It's a very powerful mind. And this develops slowly through the meditation practice. If you're trying to look at look at the stars through a telescope and it's shaking, you can't see anything. But if you have a tripod and it's steady, then you can look through it. So that's what concentration does for us. It steadies the mind and it makes it stronger so that we can see more closely and clearly into experience. This quality of concentration, just like all of these qualities, is innate. We all have this capacity for the mind to be gathered and collected and focused on what we're doing. The mind comes together like that when, it, when we want to be here, when it's interested in what's happening. So when you're doing something that you really love, if you love to cook, and then when you're cooking, it's like everything else just kind of recedes into the background. Or if you like to garden, or if you like to play the guitar, or if you like to draw. When you're, when you're doing that activity, the mind likes it. It wants to be there. And so it comes together. The analogy in the suttas is it's like a, the concentrated mind, the collected mind, is compared to a flame in a still room where there's no wind. So it's like a candle flame that doesn't flicker. It's steady. It's this non-distracted quality. And we can see, you know, as I talk about these qualities, the value of them in our day-to-day -day life, the value of calm in a world of frenetic, hectic busyness. Even just a little bit of calm can make the difference between a situation getting out of control or things going smoothly. And this quality of concentration, this uh, world of multitasking that we have, you know, which is, they've shown is a very inefficient way to work for the mind. The more, the more we learn how to do one thing at a time wholeheartedly, the more efficient we are with our energy in life, the more we can actually accomplish and achieve. Because we're not wasting our energy. So the mind's not scattered. You know, I remember when I was in college trying to read sometimes, 
it would read the same sentence or paragraph over, you know, like <laughs> 10 times. God, why can't I focus, you know? The editing system kicks in about all the reasons why I couldn't focus and call. <laughs> Stop that sentence there. <laughs> it takes time to develop concentration. It's, it's not one of my strengths. It's definitely not. But it can be developed through patience and persistence. And just showing up again and again. When you think about it, uh, consider the thousands, the tens of thousands of hours we spend distracted. It's called the monkey mind, swinging from one thought to another, to another, to another, jumping from here to there, jumping, jumping, scattered. Internet, our phones, conversations. So it's no wonder that we sit down to meditate and the mind is not collected because we've spent so much time doing the opposite. But with the steady, gentle perseverance, that steadiness develops. And part of that's about being wholehearted. This uh, other quality uh, that I've alluded to, but not spoken specifically of, which is called atapi. It means ar- sometimes translated as ardor. There's wholeheartedness, really giving giving our hearts full attention to what we're doing. When we practice with this vitaka vichara, this connecting and sustaining, we're building concentration one moment at a time. Connect with the object and then sustain the attention just for even a moment or two. Just that sustaining. That's slowly building concentration. And then that capacity can start to carry over into life. The ability to just to just do one thing at a time. So as you're getting ready in the morning to go to work or do errands, instead of you know, being three steps ahead of yourself, planning what route you're going to take to work while you're getting your things together and getting dressed, you know, just putting on the clothes, just opening the door, just walking outside, just locking the door just walking to the car. Our life starts to become our practice. We're just doing one thing at a time, wholeheartedly, completely, right there with what's happening. This tends to be the easiest to do with physical activities, physical tasks, washing the dishes, getting dressed, brushing your teeth, um, getting into or out of the car, It tends to be harder with things that involve more thinking, like working, emailing, uh, interacting as its own practice. Um, But all of them can become uh, uh, areas of paying attention. And instead of strengthening distractedness, 
impatience, worry, anxiety, confusion, annoyance, irritation, we can strengthen calm, steadiness, patience, kindness, generosity, using the very activities of our life to cultivate the mind. Concentration, the purpose of concentration, there are different kinds of concentration. We talked about this with some of you. Um, there's a, a kind of samadhi or, or unification of mind that becomes absorbed into the experience or the object of awareness. So if you, if you repeat a mantra over and over, you stare at a candle flame or a colored disc, things like this, metta practice, <coughs> the mind can become so collected, so, um, uh, so complete in itself that it, everything else falls away and it becomes absorbed into that one experience, that one object of awareness. And these kinds of states, they're hypnagogic states, altered states of consciousness, uh, can be very powerful, they have their own uh, sort of healing, um, but that's not the purpose of the practice. So that's a kind of fixed, absorptive concentration this practice uses something called momentary concentration, <coughs> which is the ability of the mind to be steady with change. To be concentrated, to be stable and still enough to know the quality of experience as it changes and flows through awareness. And this is what leads to insight. So when the mind is stable and collected and clear, when mindfulness and concentration are strong and steady, then the mind can, can see change more clearly. It can see experience more clearly. All of a sudden, the in-breath becomes this strange phenomenon of tingling and stretching and pulsing like it's never been before. Or all of a sudden seeing becomes light and color and shape and movement. And you see the change right in front of your eyes and it's, it's always been there. It's, not, it's just like a course, it's changing. Or the mind, a thought. You see one thought clearly come and go and you realize, oh, that was just a thought. Instead of being the one who's thinking. And concentration leads to insight. It's in service of seeing clearly. And when we see clearly, the mind lets go. When we see the reality, 
of change, that everything is changing quickly, and there's nothing to hold on to. When we, when we see things, it's just, it's just a flow. The mind doesn't try to fix it. The last of these qualities, which is a fruit of practice, is called equanimity. It's kind of an odd word, not a word we use very often. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an equilibrium, a balance, an evenness of mind that's cool and peaceful. But that's also dynamic. It can shift and change with things. One of the analogies that's given is it's like equanimity is likened to a mountain. Steady, stable, winds, rain, and the storms can come and batter the sides of the mountain. The mountain doesn't move. It's not bothered by any of the changing weather, the sun, the rain, the cold, the snow, the wind. The mountain's just stable. Equanimity doesn't mean uh, that everything becomes gray or bland or neutral. It doesn't mean that we're indifferent or that we stop feeling things. It just means that the mind isn't tossed around by circumstances in life. That we're not exhausting ourselves with the push and pull of our attempts to try to control things. That we can we can roll with the changes. And sometimes the word in Pali, upeka, uh, literally means uh, looking look out, looking on, looking out on, on uh, looking on equanimity. So it's that sense of having perspective or distance. One of the analogies that's used also is it's like a, it's like a grandparent watching a child play. So there's the sense of that wisdom of the elder that's been through it all, that's seen it all. And if the, child's, the child breaks its toy and starts crying, it's not that the grandparent doesn't care. But she knows it's all right. It's okay. Toys break. You know. If the grand, the, the grandmother got down on her knees and started wailing. Oh no, the toy broke. That'd be really scary <laughs> <laughs> for the kid, right? That's not compassion. <laughs> equanimity. We need equanimity to have compassion. We need that that balance of the wisdom that knows perspective. It's, everything comes and goes, everything changes, and it's okay. So when you look back over the last few days and all the experiences you've had, all the difficulties and the good moments, 
You know, if there's one thing you've learned, are you in control? Can you say to the mind, be concentrated now. Now, now I'm going to be joyful. At 11.20 a.m. I'm going to feel angry or sad or happy. We're not in control. Now my thinking is going to stop for the next 10 minutes and then... So one of the things that practice reveals through mindfulness and concentration that we see more clearly is that life is just a series of ups and downs. The in-breath and the out-breath. It's talked about in the Buddhist tradition as, uh, as uh, the worldly winds, the lokadhamma, the winds of the world, that there are these eight different winds that blow through our lives, all of us, pleasure and pain, they come and they go. Gain and loss. We get things, we lose them. We get things, we lose them. Fame and disrepute. They like us, they hate us. We're in the limelight, we're in the shadow. It comes and it comes. And then praise and blame. This is another quote from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. They blame those who remain silent. They blame those who speak much. They blame those who speak in moderation. There is none in this world who is free from blame. So how much of our lives are spent chasing pleasure and gain and fame and praise and avoiding loss and displeasure, disrepute and blame? Are we in control? They just come and go. The more we see this clearly, not intellectually, because we all know this, the more we really see it with our own eyes, in our direct experience, the more the heart starts to understand deeply and know, oh right, this is the nature of things. These forces just come and go. If you want to know the nature of water, watch the waves. So we observe, we watch, we see the change and we start to realize that you can't go up without down and you can't go down without up. It's just, it's, life has these two sides. And so instead of despairing when things don't go our way or we don't get what we want, we can just hold it with a sense of spaciousness. That's equanimity. That it's, it's all right. Whatever's happening, it's all right. There's space for it. And this is where the heart really starts to feel free. 
when our lives aren't defined by the content of our experience, when the results or the way things go doesn't need to define who we are, how we feel about ourselves, or what we're worth, or the meaning of our life. We start to see that who we are, our values, our self-worth, the meaning, it's, it's determined more by how we show up, not by what we get, by how we relate to things, by the qualities that we bring forth in our heart. So then, when the bathroom floods or your mother-in-law moves in, <laughs> or when the diagnosis arrives, you're not shaken. It doesn't break us inside. Because, because it's not unexpected. Because we have this soft readiness. We know that we don't know what's going to happen. And that life includes all of it. And so then, oh, now this. Just like in the practice, now this. Okay, we find our bearings. So this quality of equanimity develops slowly. It's not something we can make happen. It's not something we can create. It happens by learning to, to stay with the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows, the struggles, the frustration. So every moment that you've been here, that you've been out there walking and you feel like you're going to go nuts and you take a deep breath and you say, okay, just one step. Building equanimity in the face of that frustration to just pause, widen, slow down. Okay, yeah, this is frustration. Breathe out. Every time you're sitting and the back hurts and it's aching and it's hard and, you know, just want to, like, get the heck out of the hall. And, okay, can I just bear with this for one more moment? Can I just relax? That softening of the reactivity, equanimity is growing. And as I've been saying, the more you can honor your limits and trust, Trust yourself to know when to back off, when to take a break, when it's too much. The, the deeper the equanimity will grow. It's not about pushing. Pushing is more craving and aversion. It's that, that steady, patient holding that Ajahn Suchita was talking about. And so when things feel like too much, then we recognize, oh, this is too much. And we shift gears, come back to the anchor, go for a walk, have a cup of tea, breathe, 
and then the balance begins to grow inside. Another one of my teachers used to say, sometimes there's this beautiful Sri Lankan man, Godwin Samaratne, very, very filled with, with kindness, very gentle, tall, thin man. He would say, sometimes when I don't feel so good, I like to say to myself in a very gentle way, it's okay to not feel okay. <laughs> That's equanimity. It's okay to not feel okay. It's just the holding of what is. So the, coming back to the theme, the title of this retreat, Cultivating Inner Freedom. So if we're only free when we're comfortable, or when we get what we want, when things go our way, is that really freedom? Then what happens when we're uncomfortable, when things don't go our way, when you get the other side of the coin? which is at least half the time. We're not going to, we can't hold on to anything, including the experiences that you've had here. But the path isn't about what we get. It's not about having an experience. It's about what we learn how to be with experience. Equanimity means, it means ending the war inside. Giving up the battle for control and resisting. The path isn't about what we get, it's about what we let, what we let go of. When we let go of the need for things to be a certain way, and the mind's at peace. To be truly free inside, nothing changes outside. In the external world, everything can be exactly the same, but the mind can be free open, clear, stable, not moving. Because our relationship with the experience has changed. We're no longer tied to it. We're no longer bound to the content of the experience. Our happiness, our well-being is no longer linked, joined with things being a certain way or not being a certain way. The mind is released from that. It's independent. 
because it's stable in awareness. It's stable in itself, in the knowing of experience. And then whatever touches it, it doesn't shake, it doesn't tremble, it doesn't wobble. This is freedom. I'll give you an example, a really mundane example from being on retreat. The long retreat. My mind was very quiet, very sensitive. So you know how you can get sensitive on retreat. Little things bug you. Yes? Okay. <laughs> Jack in. There is this guy who liked to eat candy on the retreat and he would unwrap in the meditation hall the candy and then he would suck on it. And then, and then we would be walking. I always ended up in the same walking room as him, of course. He's a bit older and he would do this thing with his mouth even when he didn't have sucking candy in, he would, he would do this thing where he would go and make this kind of smacking noise with his lips. Oh, drunk and crazy. I wanted to kill this guy. Hearing, hearing, unpleasant, unpleasant. Aversion, aversion. Breathe, breathe. Hearing, hearing, unpleasant. Aversion, aversion. Breathe. Like that. Okay. And then one time I was walking. Same guy, just the two of us. <laughs> Didn't bother me. It was just hearing. It was unpleasant. The sound was this exact same sound. No effect. Just 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 went right through like a knife through warm butter, just sound, just poof, just pass through. No resistance, no resistance. Nothing changed outside. The mind was free. Because it wasn't, it wasn't grabbing onto the experience. It wasn't <coughs> resisting it or wanting it to be a different way. It wasn't joined with the experience. It was stable in itself, in the knowing, in the awareness, balanced. And then whatever happens, it's okay. It's okay. So this is called Akupa Chetobimutti, the unshakable deliverance of the mind, the unshakable deliverance of the heart. Nelson Mandela wrote, when we can sit in the face of insanity and dislikes and be free from the need to make it different, then we are free. To sit in the face of insanity or dislikes and be free from the need to make it different, 
then we are free. Quite powerful coming from a man who was in prison for 27 years and fought for the end of apartheid. To talk about being free from the need to make things different. So this is very important because equanimity doesn't mean that we don't act, that we don't respond, that we don't work for change, but it comes from a different place inside. It doesn't come from a compulsive or self-centered or righteous need to make things different. It comes from a balanced place. There's a movement of the heart that's about compassion or integrity or generosity but that's not attached to what happens because it recognizes that's not in our control. But we still act because we do, we do what the heart is moved to do. And so the path there is one moment at a time being aware of what's happening and letting go or letting be. Letting the distraction be, letting the craving be, letting the restlessness be, letting the guilt, the remorse, the fear, the anxiety Staying steady, holding the frame, holding that tender awareness. Until the mind sees the nature of things clearly. And then it's not tossed around by the waves anymore. Offer these thoughts for your reflection. Thank you for listening. So let's just sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.